0: As Larry said, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 21, 28 through 32, if you want to go ahead and have that text open in front of you. Our series for the past few months, uh, which is going to be coming to an end at the end of this month, has been thinking about in a world of faithlessness. And we certainly have defined what that means, and we've looked at examples of it. And as I considered our text this morning and and where we're going to go from here in our thoughts together, I want to call this in a world of faithlessness, let's get to work. I kind of see this as a part three uh, nested underneath what we've already been studying. We think about Jesus and his commitment and the church, how we're meant to be devoted. It's time for us to get to work. And what does that really mean? The way that we're going to look at our text this morning is going to be from three different perspectives, Uh, three objectives that we want to accomplish by looking at Matthew chapter 21, verse 28 through 32. First off, we're going to take a look at the context. And while we're here, we're going to consider to whom is he speaking? When he writes this and uh, when he speaks these things and and why is he speaking? The second main objective that we're going to consider with our text, we're going to draw some insights from within the parable, our text today. We're going to consider some phrases that Jesus makes and then we're going to see the the meaning of the parable. The third objective that we're going to think about this morning from our text in Matthew 21 is we're going to make application to our lives. We're going to consider God's invitation and then we're going to check our actions So let's take a look at our first main objective. Let's look at the context for our parable. Now, as we've already had it read to us, uh, looking at Matthew 21, 28 through 32, we want to ask the question, how do we end up here? To, To be able to do that, we're going to look at who Jesus is speaking to. If you look back just a few verses, and I think this is important every time we consider a passage, if you look back just a few verses, in verse 23, you're going to find the people that Jesus is in a conversation with. It says, and when he, speaking of Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. Every time Jesus comes to a public place, every time he takes the opportunity to teach somebody, he's going to have a group that maybe want to consider what he's speaking, and they want to challenge it. In our context today, we have these religious leaders. And they've been watching him. This is not the first time that they have questioned him. And at the heart of the conversation they're having with him is going to be Over his authority. And what Jesus is going to do, and this is considering our context, he's speaking to these religious leaders, he's going to give two parables. And in the midst of these parables, he's going to have a dialogue with them. He's going to ask them some questions. If you look at verse 31, he asked them a question and it says, they said, the they to which he is referring is going to be these religious leaders. The second parable, which we do not have time to cover today, starting in verse 33 and going through the end of the chapter, Once again, you can see in verse 41, it says, and they said to him. The group of religious leaders Jesus gives these parables to, and he's going to ask them some questions. And he wants to gauge their understanding on what he is doing. And so he's going to draw these applications to them immediately from these two parables. But I do want to set this to the side, to whom is he speaking. We'll find out more about their mentality and why Jesus needed to address them. But let's now think about why He is speaking these things. We know the crowd and we know the objects, but why is He speaking them? Now the conversation that Jesus has, we said, is going to be based off of authority. They are looking at what Jesus is doing and they are challenging His authority. And they're thinking, why are you doing these things? Or how are you able to do them? You're casting out demons and you're doing all of these great deeds. You have to have somebody's authority. Now we should know intuitively where the authority is coming from. It's God. But Jesus is asking them a question. Verse 24, I'll ask you one question. The infamous tactic of responding to a question with a question. He's done this before and he'll uh, do it many other times, but he's going to ask them, all right, if you're going to want to know my authority, let me ask you a question. All right, this, this baptism of John, you know who John the Baptist is. You know what he's been doing. Uh, his message and what he's been talking about, is it come from God or is it not? Now, the religious leaders, they're going to get all upset about this because they're going to have a hard time responding to this message or this question, and here's why. If John's message was from heaven, they were not following him. As in, John's authority came from God, and they are dismissing God's authority. The second option is, if John's message is man-made, they are too afraid to do anything about it because of their fear of the people. If you were to take down why he's speaking the parable that we're about to get to, what has led into this is not just the question with a question tactic. He's really getting to the heart of these religious leaders. And here's what he's saying. You guys have failed to act. In whatever the case may be, you have failed to act. Whether you think that John's message is from heaven or you think that it is man-made, you're too afraid of people or you're too afraid of yourself and the changes that you need to make, you have failed to act. You haven't gotten to work. So why is he asking these parables or why is he presenting these parables? Is to challenge their actions. In a world of faithlessness, we have seen people who have not moved on uh, for God. They have not taken the next step. And as Jesus is dialoguing with these individuals, he's saying, you guys are not moving. You're not going where you need to go. You're not considering what you need to consider. So there's the first thing that we wanted to observe. Our first objective from this text is is to think about the context. Now, let's draw some insights from within the text itself. We've already read it, but let's slowly stair-step through it and get an understanding of what Jesus is doing here. We know that He's challenging their failure to act. And we'll see some more of this a little bit further in. So if we know that, then we can know Jesus' reason and rationale behind this parable. Look at verse 28. What do you think? He is inviting His crowd to respond to what He's saying. He's challenging them, not just intellectually, but this is also going to be a heart matter as well. He's literally going to get into their uh, their lives. And he's saying, I want you to consider what I'm about to say, and you're going to have a response to it. And I want to know what that is. So I'm preparing you before we get further into what I'm about to tell you. What do you think about this? I'm going to be asking you a question, and I want to know how you are going to respond to it. Now, Jesus has done this before. And it should be an obvious thing. When you read the parable, it has a very immediate application to it. His questioning is almost like, what is 2 plus 2? There's not going to be any challenging um, math that you're going to have to go through. There's not going to be any philosophical loops that you're going to have to transverse. It's just going to be as simple as, what do you think about this? The second parable... And we'll see their answer in just a second. But the second parable, they give a little bit of a stronger response. Once again, we won't look at all the details, but I do at least want to look at how passionate they are with their response. Look at verse 41. These same religious leaders, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyards to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. Now, by knowing their response here, we can see maybe how they have escalated as we go through this parable. They are passionate about their answers. When he's asking them something very simple that they can get to a conclusion of, you can see how upset they are where they're looking at the story he's telling and they are invested. And they say, well, it's quite obvious what should be happening here. The second parable has an obviousness to it. And the first parable will as well. As you can see in verse 31, they give just a two-word response because they know the answer. It's obvious as two plus two equals four. Now, Matthew has done this before where he's shown us where Jesus has asked the same thing of what do you think? In chapter 17, verse 25, Jesus asked them, what do you think? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And he teaches them something there. In chapter 18, verse 12, he says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? In chapter 22, verse 42, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now these questions, if you look at each one of them, when he says, what do you think? They have an obviousness to them. There's nothing that I'm presenting here today. There's nothing that we're reading from Jesus that's going to catch us off guard where we thought, I've never thought about that before. You read it and you realize very quickly the immediate application of it, which is why we still want to draw some insights from the text to have a better understanding about why he is doing this. But take note of this. Jesus invites a response. And it's going to require more than a verbal response. So tuck that away in your mind. Jesus is inviting a response, and it's more than a verbal response. Now the next thing that I want to look at within this text are the sons. We continue in verse 28. A man had two sons. And he went to the first, and he said, Son, go work in the vineyard today. And he said, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And went to the other son, and he said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not. I can almost see a father giving these rules, instructions to his children. You parents, and even uh, us as children, can you think of some times where our parents have given us rules, and maybe we thought in our mind, I'll go do that, but we get distracted, and we don't do it. And then we step back and we think, okay, I need to do that. And so we get up and we respond to it but on the flip side of it we can think about this as well and i can think of a, a father asking a son having a, a situation of that telling them to go do something and they just flat out don't do it oh yeah dad i will go do i will go clean up my room i will go clean up those toys and then that's not what's happening <laughs> that's not what comes from here i can see this very vividly and i think we all can from it but you've got these two sons whether they're talking about an older and a younger one it doesn't matter You've got two of them that are given the same exact command. Go and work in the vineyard today. Don't go work in the vineyard tomorrow. Don't consider it and think about what you'll do at a, a later time. It's very detailed in the sense of it's straight to the point. Go and work. In a world of faithlessness, as we've seen, one of the issues with faithlessness is that we don't work. We become apathetic. We become paralyzed in our actions for a lot of different reasons. And we don't take the next step forward that we should. But in a world of faith, we act. In a world of faith, we get to work. It doesn't matter what other people are doing. It doesn't matter what the other son is doing. We have a responsibility because we are all equally given the commandment to go and work. Now take note of this. When he gives them the the command, go and work in the vineyard, you're going to see two verbal responses. Now I've told you already to tuck something away. So let's think about their verbal responses. The first one says, I will not. It's an honest defiance. There's no deceptive language I know the command and I consciously choose not to obey it. It's a response. He invited them, what do you think? And he's looking at what this son did and it's just an outright honest defiance. No. The second verbal response comes from the second son that says, I go, sir. A respectful term. And this is false compliance. It has all the verbal cues without any of the actions. Now, what did I tell you to tuck away in your mind? As we think about moving just from a verbal a response to an invitation to an action, we're going to see what they did. It goes beyond just the words that they made when they said, I will not, or I go, whether it was honest defiance or it was false compliance, whatever that is, we want to look at their actions, determine what did they do from this moment. So here are their two action responses. The first son, we are told that afterward he changed his mind, or he regretted, depending on which translation you look at, but he changed and went. Now what does it mean to change your mind? Now we don't have a lot more that is spelled out in this parable, and I think it's for, uh, it's for a good reason. that uh, I mean, We're not going to try and supply too much here at all, but we can step back and we can think about why would they change their mind? It should be out of a respect for the father that he has asked him to do something. It doesn't have to mean anything about the the application of the vineyard. There will be another parable for that. And, And why that vineyard is being given and why it requires toil and work. That's not it at all. It should be the father said it and you go do it. Whatever led to this son's change of mind should be obvious. And when Jesus gives us the application of the parable, it drives that point home. Changing the mind is similar to repentance, but it has a different nuance to it. When we change our mind, I think about in chapter 27, verse 3, where Judas changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders after he got those coins to betray Jesus. He changed his mind about it. But as we know, it was too late at that point for him. But for the son here in this parable, in our story, it is not too late. He hears the command, he had outright defiance for it, but he decided to make a change of mind, which then changed his actions. And he went and he worked. Maybe it was a weighing of the facts about what the father had to say. Maybe it was a weighing of his own emotions that led to this. Maybe it was the situation at hand. Whatever it was, it required him to make a change and he outright did it. But let's look at the second of the action responses from this parable with the second son. He said, I will go, our verbal response, but the action response is, but did not go. Period. End of story. No other commentary, no other thought about why. Did he make an excuse about it? Did he say this is the reason why I'm not going and I refuse to go? It just says he didn't. We start supplying and we start thinking, why? But once again, we're just looking at the obviousness of this. We should know There's a difference between when the Father asks you to do something and you do it, and when the Father asks you to do something and you don't do it. And what's convenient about this parable, Jesus has already invited a response, which means he's going to be giving us the application of it as well. In verse 31, which of the two did the will of his Father? That's the question not all the other excuses, not all the other things involved. It's which one did the will of the Father. And they say in verse 31, the first. Now, I think about their response in verse 31 and their response in verse 41. It's similar to other times that we'll see through the scriptures and I think mainly about David. When David is given a parable about uh, that that lamb and the man who owns it and you know this is in conjunction with David and his adultery. By the end of the story, David is upset about this man that has that sheep that is taken away uh, or that lamb that is taken away and and it's been slaughtered and he's all upset and he's like, man, we need to go after that person. And Nathan, the prophet who had told him that story, turns around and he said, talking about you and what you've done with Bathsheba and what you've done with Uriah's wife. And then we see His repentance. We see Him changing because that had brought to light something. When we watch this, we should see a change. Now, they're giving all the right words. They know what they should be doing. They know the answer to the question, who did the will of the Father? There's no real calculations I have to perform to know what I'm supposed to do or who was doing what was right. But let's look at how Jesus deals with the parable and their response. Here's another insight from the text. He says, Truly I say to you, you have to pay attention every time that Jesus gives you an application of his parable. I almost want to consider it's uh you're doubly respons- uh, responsible for it. There's some times where he'll speak in parables because people are not ready to receive them. There's other times when he speaks in parables and he gives the application of them where it's like, oh, he really, he knows that I know. <laughs> There's no sitting back and deliberating on this. He knows what I should be doing. And He's laying it right out in front of me. But when he says, truly, truly, or truly I say to you, there's no getting around the meaning. The tax collectors and the prostitutes go in the kingdom of God before you. Now, remember the you here are the religious leaders who think that they are doing what is correct. And I think it's interesting here that we see tax collectors and prostitutes. Normally when Jesus uses this phrase, He talks about tax collectors and a generic group of sinners. But to just go ahead and jump into tax collectors and prostitutes, he's getting to the vilest of the vile. He's getting immediately to people's lives that are doing what is wrong. There's no supplying extra information at all. You know these people in these categories need to make some serious changes. When you think about someone that was considered a sinner that came to Jesus, I think about in Luke chapter 7 with a woman who washed Jesus' feet. The people around in that scenario got all upset because she was washing Jesus' feet. And do you remember the question that they asked him? If you knew what kind of lady this was, if you knew what she was up to, you would not allow her to get near to you. Do you know? Jesus invites those people that need changes in their lives. And when they make the change, it's obvious. You know, I think about these tax collectors. What's the big deal about them? And without getting into the the political and the um, historical data behind them, we can just look at their reputation. Throughout the Gospels, their reputation is very obvious that they are related to robbers, murderers, and sinners. Even in secular writings, they are associated with beggars, thieves, and robbers. It's not a person that you really consider very high. You think about their moral lives, it's not something that you want to follow. And for these religious leaders, they're told that a tax collector is going to enter into the kingdom of God before them. A couple of times in the book of Luke, when a tax collector gets called out, or maybe when they ask, what do I need to do to change? I think about Luke chapter 3, 10 through 13. John the Baptist has some of these tax collectors that come to him. And they say, What do we need to do? And he says, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. One of the more noble of the tax collectors that we can think about is Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 9, verse 8. He speaks of himself and he says, The half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. These are good examples of what you should be doing, which tells us the converse of that that gives these tax collectors a bad reputation is that they are so consumed with their possessions and their lives that they uh, they allow those to become their gods. Someone that's in the form of prostitution, it's one of the lowest, most dishonorable practices. And whatever led the individual to that point, it doesn't matter for our story here. These people are the ones that go in the kingdom of heaven before the religious leaders. Every time you see entering into the kingdom of God you know that this has to do with being where God is. Entering the kingdom of God or heaven is already familiar for where we want to be. There are times in Jesus, uh, in His Sermon on the Mount, where He talks about the kingdom of heaven with the the right qualities that we need to have as a kingdom resident. You think about his uh, story in chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, when he says the kingdom of God and those people that will stand before the judgment of God, it's those that are doing the will of the Father. There's many other times in Jesus' ministry where he tells us that you want to be where God is and the kingdom of God is is that exact place. And so you have to ask, who's in that kingdom? The Beatitudes, he says, the poor in spirit those that are persecuted for righteousness, and really he's bundling everything together. He says the ones that want to follow after God. The crowd here wants to be where God's kingdom is. And he's telling them, you you have people that are going in before you. And so he's anticipating their response. And he tells them this in verse 32. For John came, and this connects us back to our context. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed Him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe in Him. I think by showing us John, we have to understand what John was doing, that he was showing us God's will about what was right. His preaching included changes of one's moral life to get to work for the kingdom of God. See, John pointed to Jesus as the superior Person showing righteousness, and I think what 's interesting about what john, uh, what Matthew is recording for us and what Jesus is saying here is that these religious leaders did not believe john 's witness even after seeing society's vilest sinners repenting and believing him and his message they saw John and they didn't obey they saw people give up their vile practices, their sins, and come to the King of God and listen, and they still did not obey. They've completely missed the point. If you go to the tail end of these two parables together in verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Really? (laughs) They get to it and they say, I think you're talking about me. Verse 46, and although they were seeking to arrest him, They feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Everyone knows what's going on here. Everyone has figured it out. There's a failure to act. Those sinners, those people that believed and responded, are different than those that did not believe and did not go. And the third point, let's think about some immediate application to us. We've considered some different insights from the text. Look at the context itself. How does this relate to you and me? Do you see it already? The issue at hand is whether we're only using mere words to express our commitment instead of active compliance. What was the question that Jesus asked them after telling the parable? Verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? If In a world of faithlessness, it's time for us to get to work. To get to work requires doing God's will. The will of the Father. Are we doing it or are we not? Doing the will of the Father entails a profession of making it a point to actually do what God has asked. There's been other parables that we've mentioned or other stories like chapter 7, verse 21, where Jesus says, you know, you've got these people that have come to him on the day of judgment. They say, haven't we done all these great works in your name? Haven't we cast out demons? Haven't we done this and done that? And he says, apart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. And the reason why and what makes them different from everybody else is that he says, you guys were not doing the will of the father. Now, as we get into what does it mean to do the will of the Father, it should be anything that He asks us. But what we're trying to draw from here is just the the desire to go and do more for for Him. If we said yes to God, we need to act on that commitment. And it's going to require some changes in our lives. Even after, maybe for a time we said, no, I'm not going to follow you, God. I'd rather live this kind of life and do this kind of thing. If we've, if we've died to that way of living, if we've died to sin and we say, all right, I'm going to follow after you and I want to do the will of the Father, it's time for us to get up and go. There should have been initial change, but maybe we need to recheck ourselves in that commitment. But it requires a change of minds. We have to remove barriers in our lives that uh, prohibit us from seeing or maybe responding to God in the right way. I mean, a lot of times we have to remove ourselves. But we should be able to see the obvious. So let's think about God's invitation. You see, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they heard and they responded. The tax collectors stopped their love of the world, if you want to think about it in this way. The prostitutes stopped their dependence maybe on their self and and all these other pieces of baggage in their lives. Let's ask this. Where do we find ourselves in proximity to the tax collectors and the prostitutes? When you think about them and you respond the same way the religious leaders did or you're at least presented with the ability to respond with this invitation, do we think about the Pharisee that stood up and he said, I'm glad I'm not like this tax collector who's over here on his knees praying to God, asking for mercy. Do we look and he's like, you know what, I'm very far away from a tax collector. Do we think about the people that looked at the the sinful woman that came to wash Jesus' feet and say, if you only knew what manner of woman this was? Essentially, those are tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, and and I'm over here. What is my proximity to them in this story? Do I find some group of people that are unrelated, or do I find myself saying, I need to make some changes? You see, they were ready to change because they wanted to be in the kingdom. And I don't think there's anybody here, really, that's looking at this and thinking, well, I don't want to be in the kingdom. But we have to check up on our response to the invitation. And the way we're going to frame this this morning is we're going to consider. uh, We're going to consider our response by thinking about our flakiness. Are we committed or not? We're going to do it in three separate realms. The first one's going to be with morality. If we said that we're going to get to work for God and we're going to to give up practices, and although for a time we said we're not going to go, if we say that we're going to go, we're going to change our minds, we're going to change our actions, and we're going to be where God is, we have to say no to sin as we're saying yes to God. At some point, maybe, we have told Him, yes, I'll change my actions. I'll stop lying. I'll stop cheating. I'll stop stealing. I'll stop watching porn. I'll stop going too far with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. I will stop filling the blank. If we're all in and we're committed and it's time to work, we have to change our morality. And it's going to get into our lives, it's going to get into our hearts, it's going to get into our homes. But God expects it. And the second realm is going to be in regard to the church. Do you consider yourself to to be on the edge of actually uh, wanting to be committed when it comes to the church? What's your commitment level? Are you saying yes but failing to act? Are you teaching Bible class? Are you setting up for an event? Are you running a ministry? Are you meeting to serve? Are you calling or texting on people? Uh, calling or texting people to see how they're doing. If we don't want to to verge on the edge of un, uh, being flaky and we want to be committed we have to go beyond just saying yes i'm going to do that and we actually have to do it there's a couple of tests maybe we can give to ourselves to see if we're actually being active in the church or not have you noticed fewer people ask you to help have you noticed that people talk about events plans etc without you being included have you had some responsibilities removed from you do you notice people volunteering to help you regularly without you asking them, it might be that your your commitment is on the edge. You need to reassess. Are we being active in the body of Christ? Are we studying with people within the church? Are we giving and providing that encouragement? So we think about our commitment here to the church. Are we allowing other things to take us away? Are we allowing our secular Uh, commitments to override our spiritual ones of being here together? Do we turn down social invitations to spend time with our family? Are we turning down social uh, things to spend time with the church? Are we willing to turn down our family or even those things for spiritual reasons? If a friend contacts you to talk, are you ready? If there's a church event, are you asking, are we going? Do you rework your school, job, sports, vacation or family plans to fit spiritual ones? Do you say things like, we can just go to something else later? We can watch it online, or we can just miss this one event. Are there church events that you're not willing to attend? I'm not going to teach Bible class anymore. I won't go to that because I don't like it. It's too hard to do this. I'm not going to go and spend more time with the the church in these areas. We have to check our commitment and our actions. In the last realm, we think about morality, we think about church, and then there's evangelism. Are we studying with the lost? Do you know some lost people that don't know Jesus around you? Are you taking God's invitation, the same one that's presented to you that hopefully you have responded the right way to, are you taking that to someone else? Or do we shy away from teaching truth? In a world of faithlessness, it's time to get to work. Who's doing the will of the Father? Have you noticed some things in your life that have presented challenges to you that have come up as points where you feel like you're slowly stepping away? Have you allowed other things to to change your commitment? Have you been giving a verbal response, but you have not been acting on it? We want to pray with you. And prayer is not just this thing so we can write it down. We say, we prayed for you today. We seriously want to be an encouragement to each other because we're trying to make it through this world and we're trying to make it through with other people. If you just say, you know what, I've been struggling and I don't know where to get started, we want to pray about that. If you're thinking, you know what, I've been struggling with some sin in my life and I don't know which way to turn, we want to pray about it. If you're thinking, you know what, I don't even know what the invitation that God is asking me, we want to talk about it. We seriously mean we want to pray with you does not matter what's going on in your life. We're about to have a time where we're going to invite you to come so that we can pray, but you can certainly let any of us know afterwards. You can talk to an elder, you can talk to a deacon, a member, and just say, hey, I've got this going on. It should happen in that way, but we're about to have a time that is just for you to take hold of that. But maybe you really need to respond to God's invitation. And He says, I want you to be my son. I want you to be my daughter. I want you to have your sins removed so that you can have the kingdom of God takes a response. Is it just a verbal one? Or is it one that permeates every aspect of our life? You can die to sin. You can give up all of those things, allow those to be removed, and you can be buried with Christ in baptism, united with Him in a death like His because He did that for me and you so that we could rise to walk in newness of life so we can have eternal life waiting for us. Do you want to do the will of the Father? You only find it through the Son. Make the commitment today. Say yes to the Father, and let's get to work. Can we help you? Think about these things as we stand, as we sing.